you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Again, I, it's good to be back, and I want to thank you. Many of you have asked about how am I doing. Thank you for your prayers. I guess if I had to say it, I'd say I'm about 75%. Um, but I believe getting stronger every day. But again, just if you just keep praying. Pray for wisdom, if you would. I would appreciate that. Um, I think we've got it nailed down, but we'll see. By the way, uh, someone was asking me, you mean you lost 28 pounds in two weeks? No, 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 no. Uh, back a while ago, I knew I was, I was quite a bit overweight, so I've been trying to lose for about three months. But when you get the flu, and then whatever else I just had, it does drop another 10 pounds pretty quick. You know, so. And yet, as I've told people, the chart still says I'm 15 pounds overweight, so who knows? <laughs> whatever. Anyways, yeah. Okay. We have a good God, don't we? God is good. By the way, even when you go through problems, God is good. When you go through suffering, God is good. When you go through trials and tribulations, God remains good, right? God's always good. By the way, when we're, when we're studying the book of Revelation and we're seeing the sixth seal and the seventh seal opened and the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet is blown, which opens up the, the seven bowls, is God still good? God is still good. God is still good. God is always good. You know, a question that has troubled God's people throughout history is this. Why does God allow evil in the world? That is one of the key questions of all time. Mankind says this. If God is real, then what, and he is good, and he is sovereign, why would he allow evil in this world? Why does he allow evil? Isn't that a good question? Don't you ask that question? Don't you ask that question of even the political system? I mean, why do we have all these shysters running around? Why doesn't God do something? Okay? Again, the wicked often appear to prosper. Is that true? Yeah. Sin seemingly runs wild and unchecked. Why, people ask, does God not stop all the carnage? I mean, you look at places like Africa and over, especially in the Middle East, why doesn't he stop the carnage? Why doesn't he stop the corruption? Why doesn't he stop the chaos in this world? Why does he allow his children to suffer? That's one of the hardest ones. You know, a Christian, all the Christians that right now are being slaughtered in the Middle East, why does he allow this? When will divine justice prevail and righteousness be righteous, be delivered, and the wicked punished. When will this happen, Lord? I mean, Job asked it. This is what Job said in chapter 12, verse 6. The tents of the robbers prosper. I mean, the robbers are prospering, Job says. And those who provoke God are secure. Why do the wicked live and become old? That's a good question. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Uh, if you want, I mean, you got your hand in Revelation 10. You could go to Psalms ch chapter 10. Psalms 10, this is, I'm going to read it five verses, or write it down, Psalms 10. The psalmist asks this, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. 
Let them be caught, let them, let the wicked be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boast in his heart, his heart's desire. He, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. I mean, the wicked renounces you and yet he still is prospering. His ways are always prospering. Your, your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for his, all his enemies, he sneers at them. It's hard. It is hard to see wickedness prosper. Very, very difficult. Psalm 74, verse 10. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? In other words, the guy that's the wicked one. Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. <laughs> Don't you love his honesty? You know, just whew, gone. By the way, I like the Psalms. I like the Old Testament because the same questions we have today were back then. Okay? This is the question of mankind and of believers. Well, you say you're, God, you're loving you say that you're holy. You say that you're sovereign. Why does the wicked prosper? By the way, those truths work together. And if you've been in ABF class downstairs, we've worked through some of that. Psalms 83, verse 1. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They're, they're proud. Look at me. I can curse God and nothing happens to me. And then Psalms 94, verse 3. Oh, Lord, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? I mean, he says it twice. How long, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and, and speak insolent things. That's proud, arrogant things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. And that's what they do. See, the wicked will boast. You know, I can curse your God. He doesn't. He doesn't uh, do anything against me. I remember um, the story. I'm trying to think of who. But he basically, there was a, an atheist type man and cursing God and, and um, at a speech and a pastor stands up and, and the guy said, you know, if, 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 if your God is really, uh, if, if your God is really true telling this past, if he's really true, let him, let him strike me down in five minutes after he had blasted God, you know, this atheist. So they stood there for five minutes in the clock. And after five minutes, he was still standing. And he said, see, your God's not real. And the pastor just looked at, do you think that you can exhaust the almighty God in five minutes? Exhaust the patience of the almighty God in five minutes? And the pastor sat down. And I think, you know, that's exactly right. God is patient. God is forbearing. We. The wicked are not going to exhaust his patience towards evil. They're going to go on. In fact, they're going to go on in their arrogance and their pride, and they think that they have proved that God is not. Revelation 6, verse 10. This, these are the ones that were uh, martyred. The fifth seal was open, and we looked at this, and it says, And they cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So, you go back and you say all the sin and all the pain and suffering and ungodliness in the world causes the godly to long for God to intervene. We long for that. I long to see. Don't you long to see God intervene? Wow. And by the way, as I've been looking at Revelation, this has just been so encouraging to my heart. 
There's coming a day. There is coming a day that all wrongs will be righted. A day is coming when Christ will break the silence and come to reign. Not just reign, but reign with a rod of iron. The mockers will be silenced, as Peter 3 says. Satan will be bound and cast into the abyss for a thousand years. By the way, thousand years released at the end of the millennial, millennium and then finally cast in the lake of fire. That's, that's Satan's path. Wickedness in all its forms will be judged. Christ will reign in righteousness. The brokenness of this world, hearts, families, people, relationships will be healed. Sorrow, sadness, mourning, pain will be dealt with, but it will be dealt with by the king. The king. That's why we've got to keep our eyes on the king. Got to keep our eyes on Christ. Can't get, or to say it this way, you know what? Whatever happens in America, whatever happens in the next election or the elections after that, means doesn't mean one iota to the kingdom of God. It has absolutely no effect. Whatever happens has no effect on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God goes forward no matter who gets elected, no matter what type of system we live in, right? Amen? Is that true? That's true. The kingdom of God moves forward. So again, as far as the, what most important is, the kingdom, it just keeps moving forward. Uh, the misnomer back in the uh, more majority age of the 80s was this, that if you elected the right people, that the gospel would become more uh, acceptable to Americans and more people would get saved. And that was a lie. The kingdom of God has no reference point to the kingdom of this world. There's no crossover. The kingdom just keeps moving on. But I say all this because there is a day of reckoning, right? And we've been looking at it. We've been looking at it. And the day of reckoning are the, the judgments. There's, there's six sealed, or seven sealed judgments, seven trumpets, seven uh, bold judgments. They, are, uh, they go in sequential order. In other words, the six seal judgments in, uh, hap, happen. When the seventh seal is open, that opens up the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments are blown by the angels. When the seventh trumpet happens, it's blown, that seventh trumpet opens up the bold judgments, so they go sequentially that way. And, and actually, you need to know that, because if you look at the book of Revelation, starting in, in chapter 6, if you follow the judgments, you see the chronology of the book. The book follows the, the sequence of those judgments, because... What is the book of Revelation about? The revealing of Christ. What is the tribulation about in chapter 6 through 18? It's, it's God, it's Christ judging this earth. So if you follow those judgments, you're actually following the sequence of the entire uh, tribulation period, those seven-year period. So you've got to follow the, the, the sequence. And if, you, if you're in Revelation chapter 10, you see that there's a sixth trumpet blown in chapter six, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 13. If you go 9 to 13. So we've already seen the seal judgments. Now we're into the sixth trumpet. And you see the, the, one of the saddest passages of Scripture in verse 20. Now, again, half of mankind has been destroyed. Remember, in the seal judgments, a quarter of the population was destroyed in... Uh, the sixth trumpet, a third more was destroyed. That's half of all people. That's into the billions. And you would think at that point people would want to cry out to the true God. They're going to come to God because, let's face it, the hurt and destruction is going to turn them to the true God. Look at what it says in verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, 
did not repent of the works of their hands. That shows the hardness of man's heart. No matter what happens, they're going to hold on to their sin. They will not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood. By the way, those are the things that were being destroyed in these judgments, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent. That's the second time. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. By the way, verse 21 gives a real good description, or actually 2021, give a good description of what is the tribulation going to be like. We think of it as destruction. Yes. Absolutely. But what's going, to be, what's going to be filling this world? Demons? Idols? Um, murders? Sorcery? Sexual? I mean, it's going to be sin times a million. You think it's bad now? You think sin is rampant now? In that, time, in that day, when, just, when the Spirit of God has been, uh, the restraining power of God is gone, and by this point the, the Christians have been raptured, and yes, there are other people that get saved. You have the 144,000. But the world itself is going to be very, very dark, wicked, vile. Because it's basically man left to himself. Man left to himself is, is not only want, is self-destructive, but it wants to destroy everyone else around them. And so they love their sin. They did not love the Savior. They would not repent. They would not repent. And that's the heart of man right there. So this is... This is God bringing judgment on man, not only by supernatural judgments, the sealed judgment trumpets and bold judgments, but even the judgment on themselves. They would not repent. Well, when you have murderers, that means someone got murdered, <laughs> right? In other words, all this stuff is thought someone has stolen from. I mean, it's just dark, vile. God is going to judge and the, the final judgment is found right here. See, when it comes to the sixth trumpet, the next trumpet that's going to sound, obviously, is the seventh. If you turn in your Bible to uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded. That's the seventh trumpet. But notice what it says, And there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the end right there. Now you say, what do you mean that's the end? I thought there were seven more bold judgments. Well, if you go over to chapter 15, you're going to see verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues. Those are the bold judgments. So they... For in them the wrath of God is complete. That's, and then look at over in verse uh, 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, these seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of wrath uh, of God on the earth. And chapter 16 names those bold judgments. Now, this is what you see then. Some things I want you to grab. You follow the, you follow the judgments, so the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. That is the chronology. That's the chronology of the seven-year tribulation period. That takes you through the book of Revelation from chapter 6 to 18. Number two, at the, at the sixth trumpet, where we are right now, and they would not repent, there's an interlude, there's an intermission, as it were. There's an intermission from chapter 10, verse 1, 
to chapter 11, verse 15. There's an intermission between that, before that final trumpet is blown. Because when the final trumpet is blown, and you look at those bold judgments, they happen rapid fire. I mean, it's, because it doesn't say a third of the earth, it doesn't say a quarter of the earth, it says all living creatures. So in other words, that's probably the last few weeks of the tribulation. So once that seventh trumpet is sounded, that's why he can say in verse 15, 11, 15, that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. What do you mean? When the seventh trumpet, you still have seven bold judgments to go. Yeah, but they're so quick. Bang, 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 bang. Christ comes back. That's what I want you to see. That sounds really pathetic as a trumpet. But Christ comes back. Okay, so, so what is chapter 10 then, John? Well, actually, chapter 10 is an intermission. It's where you catch your breath. You know, long movies, I think the, the sound of music was like that, didn't they? You know, they went on for a long time. It was like, man, I got to get a drink. I got to run to the little boy's room. You know, I got to get some popcorn, intermission for 15 minutes. Kind of catch your breath, okay. Well, that's what's happening here. I mean, let's face it. You see all this death and destruction. Give me a... The Lord says, you know what? My people need an intermission. They need some hope. They've seen death and destruction. Let's give them some intermission. And, and by the way, we saw the same thing. If you, could, if you turn back to chapter 6, remember when the six seal judgments were opened? And it says the sixth seal, uh, this is uh, Revelation 6, 12, the sixth seal. Well, then the seventh seal wasn't open till chapter 8, verse 1. So what was chapter 7 in intermission? Remember, it was an interlude. It was, it was an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. And that's where we, in chapter 7, we find out, you know what? God has his witnesses. God always has a witness on this earth. See, the church is gone. Tribulation starts, but there's 144,000. God always has his witness. And not only has his witness, but in chapter 7, verse 14, it says there was a great multitude. Where does it say that? I know it's there somewhere. But uh, these are the ones that who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes, made them white, and I can't find it right offhand. But the point is, is there's a great multitude. Oh, verse 9. Okay, I'm going too far. There's a great multitude that gets saved through the ministry of the 144,000. Now, I want you to tell me this. After seeing all the death and destruction of the first seals, and then you see that there's 144,000 of God's men out preaching the gospel, telling the good news, and then you see a great multitude get saved. Don't you go like this and you're, wow. God, God is so loving. Even in the midst of tribulation, he's still saving souls. This earth never gets so dark that people can't turn to God. And you get encouraged, don't you? I do. So that's why, that's why chapter 7 was there. Do you have that uh, the, uh, little slide there? Yeah, so it goes like this. Did you, did you have that up before? Oh, sometimes she does things and I'm explaining something that's right below. Anyways, the first six seals, then you had an interlude. Seven, then the seventh seal did it. Then there was the trumpets. That's where we are right now, 21. Then we see another interlude. Actually, you're going to see one at the very end of the bowls as well. One last interlude, intermission. It's like we're a believers. Not a, I mean, we get, we get encouraged, no question. We get encouraged by seeing this. Because I know God is sovereign, God is loving, He is caring, and He is saving people. That encourages me. 
But I'll tell you what it's really written for. Written for. The believers that are going to find themselves in the tribulation. See, remember, they're going to have the book. They're going to be able to track this. They're going to track it. I mean, what are the witnesses? What are the 144 witnesses going to be preaching? <laughs> Pretty much out of the book of Revelation and the prophets of the Old Testament. See, the Lord said it. See, it's happening. Okay? So again, there's this intermission, this interlude. And that's what we're going to look at today, chapter 10. So if you're there, uh, let me read it for you so that we uh, kind of get the overall context. So again, the sixth trumpet has happened, and now there's a stop in the chronology of the laying out of the, of the seven-year period. See, we're just stepping back. By the way, uh, chapters 12, 13, 14 also step back. From this point on, there's going to be a lot of times where the chronology stops, and God st- steps us out and gives us another piece of information about the whole tribulation. Okay, So th- that's what you got to... Just think of the... The, tr- the judgments are what you track the seven-year period through. But then he's going to step you back and say, oh, let me tell you about my two witnesses. Oh, let me tell you about the whore of Babylon. Oh, let me tell you about the economic system. Okay? Oh, let me tell you about the Antichrist. And he just steps us out of the chronology and says, let me give you this peace. And then he steps us back in by saying, and the seventh angel blew. See, now you know, okay, now the, the chronology is moving down the path again. Okay, let me read this. Uh, Chapter 10. I'll read the whole chapter. Um, And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as as, as a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered uh, their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. Now, that's interesting. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and earth and the things that are in it and the sea and the things that are in it in it that there should be no delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, that's the seventh trumpet, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from the heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now let me just point out a couple things here, you know, and I just want this as an overview. You have some personalities playing out here. You have another angel, verse 1. But then you have the seven thunders. That's another entity, okay? Verse 4. Then you have the voice. The voice that's speaking. And who is that? Is that God? Is that Christ? Is that another angel? But that's verse 8. And then you have... 
Then you have a recommissioning. See, he's told not to write what the seven thunders are saying, but then he's supposed to eat with the book, and the book is going to represent, I believe this, I'll tell you ahead of time, I believe the little book there is the rest of the judgments. And, and by the way, when he's saying eat it, I'm not, he's not literal, that's symbolic. But he's saying internalize it. Take what I'm going to tell you about the last part of this tribulation and internalize it. In other words, it should break you, John. It should make you empathetic, John. It should make you passionate for me and passionate for those who are unsaved, John. Okay? So that's what it means by eating. He's not talking about physically eating a physical... Ah! You know. But eat it. In other words, in, uh, internalize it. All right, well, let's go back and let's look at some of these things. First of all, in our, the arrival of an angel. The arrival of another Another angel. And that doesn't surprise us because in the book of Revelation is you have more references to angels than anywhere else. In fact, I think you can take the entire Bible as a whole has less references than just the book of Revelation. Okay? So we, it doesn't surprise us that this is another mighty angel. We saw a mighty angel in chapter 5, verse 2, 18, verse 21. But again, just so we know, this is an angel, this is not the Lord. Some have said, this is Jesus. Let me give you some reasons why I believe it is not Jesus Christ, okay? First of all is this, the word another is the word alas. Alas means of the same type, of the same type, as the same type as the other angels, okay? Of the same kind as those who previously uh, well, previously did a lot of things in the book, right? We, we've seen angels over and over and over again. So the first is Allah. If he wanted to separate this being Christ, he would have used the word heteros. Heteros, right? Heterosexual, male, female, different. We're, is, a, is a male different than the female? Boy, are, are women different, man? <laughs> okay, heteros means a, of a different kind. Of a different, no, he used Allah, of a same kind. He's just saying this is another Another angel. Not only that, but since the book of Revelation is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever he has appeared up to this point, it is an unmistakable title or name, right? I mean, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 5, it says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's unmistakable. That's Christ, right? I mean, when John highlights Christ, it is unmistakable. He wouldn't use generic term of another angel. So again, I think that's a second reason. And I think the third reason is this. If this were Jesus Christ, it would add, uh, it would be, add another coming to Christ to this earth. Because notice what this angel does. Look at verse 2. He sets his foot right foot on the sea, and is left on the land. And that's actually repeated in verse 5 and 8. Wait, he actually puts his sea and on the land. But, but wait, Christ, when he comes back, according to Matthew verse 20, 24, 30, says that in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Christ came the first time and in his, his incarnation. When he comes back to rapture us, he never sets his foot on the earth. He raptures us, he comes and gets us, and we meet him in the air. That's the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. At the very end of the tribulation, Christ comes back and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And yet here, three times, this angel sets his foot 
on this earth. No, no, it can't be Christ. His second coming is when he is final end of the tribulation, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, destroys the enemies, and then sets up the kingdom. Uh, Not only that, but look at verse 9. John says this, uh, so I went to the angel and said, and this is the imperative, this is a command, give me the book. Now I can't imagine John commanding Christ to do anything, right? So again, this is not, this is just another angel. And you're probably at this point saying, okay, John, I got it. It's another angel, right? But again, we, it's not Christ. So that's his identity. Let's look at his description. But this is a mighty angel, four part, clothed with a cloud. That symbolizes power. You see uh, Christ uh, with a cloud. The idea is uh, supremacy. By the way, not omniscience. This is, he's not God. This angel is not God. But it's showing power, majesty. Um, and a rainbow was, in, was on his head. That represents God's covenant mercy, right? A rainbow. Think back to Genesis chapter 9. And his face was like the sun. Brilliant, radiant, glory. But, but remember this. That would just be a reflection of who God is. In other words, to say that's of that of the angel doesn't mean that he's God. It just means... Because remember what happened with Moses? In the presence of God, right? The reflection of God. This is the reflection of God. The angel will have the, the angels will be, will be brilliant. I mean, when we finally get to heaven, they will have brilliant glory. Why? Because the reflection of God. And then his feet like pillars of fire that symbolizes unbending holiness and judging wickedness. So this angel was sent by God with the reflection of God. To judge on God's behalf. Actually, when I say God, I'm referring specifically to Christ. Because again, in John chapter 5, I think 22 says that all judgment has been given to the Son. By the way, we've got to be careful. And sometimes I fall on this too. You know, there's three persons of the Trinity. And as we're talking, and even praying, like in the sense of, you know, it is for God's glory that this is happening. But it's the Son that's accomplishing the... Uh, the actual judgment, okay? So we want to identify the person of the Trinity that's doing the work. So now the Son sends the, this particular angel, and he has something in his hand. Look at verse 2. He had a little book. Uh, by the way, I, I don't think that's the same book of chapter uh, 5, verse 1, when it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. It's the same uh, derivative, but it's different. And this is just a little book. It's not the same one. It's not the scroll, the book that Jesus has been opening up that has, that has uh, uh, made the, uh, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments happen. This is just another little book. Uh, most likely this book is going to, and I'm going to quote, unveils all the terrors of the final divine judgments yet to come. I think that's what's contained in this book. It's the final terrors. It wouldn't be going back to the previous ones. John's already seen those. But this book, it's because at the end he says, go prophesy. In other words, uh, okay, you've seen a lot, John. We've already gone through nine chapters. You've seen a lot of death and destruction. You've seen Jesus Christ high and lifted up. But there's still more to come. And this book represents the final judgments. And that's why he recommissions them in verse 11 by saying, now I want you to go prophesy again, okay? 
prophesy again about many peoples. In other words, your job's not done. Boy, you think, it's, you think a lot has happened, but now there's still more. So that's what's contained within this little book. How is God going to respond to the final half of the population that have not died, the final population that has not repented, they would not repent of their immorality, they would not repent of their idolatry, they will not repent of their demon worship. This is how God's going to respond. And then finally, his authority, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Again, this action demonstrates God's sovereign authority to judge the entire earth. But God is using one of his instruments. But it's talking about authority here. Because notice, you can even see it in verse 3, and he cried with a loud voice. That shows authority. As when a lion roars, when, when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Huh. Something else now. So we see the angel, we got the little book. We understand that. This is an interlude. This is to encourage the saints. The saints that are living today... I think more importantly, the saints that are going to be living then. Okay, an unusual command. Look at verse 4. And now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, and boy, thunders, we saw the four living creatures back a few chapters ago. It says their voices were like thunder. Beyond that, quite honestly, I don't know what the seven thunders are. I mean, I heard one commentator write, he said, maybe they're, an, maybe they're another set of judgments that are not even found in this book. So maybe there's a fourth set of judgments, seal, trumpet, bowl, and maybe a fourth set. I, we don't know. You know, when you come to this book, there's some things that you're not going to find out. If you say, I want to see the chronology, track the judgments. I can tell you that. What's the main subject of the book, Christ? You know, who wins in the end? God? <laughs> Who doesn't win in the end? Wicked? All right, but, you know, there's going to be some things. But whatever they uttered, now again, seven thunders, you know. And, I mean, John has been told to write these things down. Don't seal them up, right? And remember chapter 1, he's told, write these things down, the things that were, are going to be. Write them down. John's getting his book out, you know. But now, notice what happens here. I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, who's the voice? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Spirit? Is it another angel? We don't know. Just another voice. Just a voice. But a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered. In other words, Don't write those. Don't write those. Now, you say, well, first of all, you know, there's times when God has told his prophets not to write. Like in Daniel, he was told at certain points in chapter 8, verse 26 of Daniel and 12, 9, don't write it. Don't record it. Don't record this part of the vision. So there are things that God has chosen not to, uh, not to give us because they're not necessary. Uh, Job says this, Job 37.5, God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. Maybe that's part of it. We could not comprehend this. So he just says, you know, John, the seven thunders, what you just heard, don't write it. 
So we don't have it. Like, people ask, well, what, what, did, what did he hear? Well, no. <laughs> the whole point is we don't have it, right? Deuteronomy 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of the law. So there's some things that are secret he hides, other things he reveals, and he reveals to us, to, to us he reveals those things, which is again, the written word of God. He reveals the word, the things he wants us to know, so that we might pass them on to our children, right? That our children would have. And that we might, what is the key word I just said? That we might do. See, there's an action. Truth should lead to action. Truth unto godliness, uh, Titus says. Truth leads us to godliness. When we find truth, it needs to lead us to godliness. But here, John is told, don't write it. And you might say, just ask why. I think it's this, because it is too terrifying. I think whatever the seven thunders said would be too terrifying for us to understand. Therefore, it would be almost like a distraction or not able to comprehend. So John is told by the voice, I think personally of Christ, I think that's the voice, source of the voice, don't write it. Okay, I won't write it, right? Let's go on, verse 5. Number 3, an outcome that is guaranteed. An outcome that is, so we've seen this, we've seen the, uh, we've seen the angel, We've seen the seven thunders. Now an outcome that is guaranteed. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea. That's a, again, shows authority. Raised up his right hand to heaven like a vow. And again, this is another reason to say it's not Christ. He's vowing, swearing. And he swore by him. Who's him? God. Him, that's guarantee. In other words, when it says he swore by him, that means this is guaranteed. This will happen. This is for sure. Who lives forever and ever. And now we know who he's talking about. Who created heaven and the things that are in it. The earth and the things that are in it. And the sea and the things that are in it. And that there should be no delay no longer. By the way, you just, say, you just see what he says. Heaven, earth, sea. Okay. God originated this universe. Amen? God is the creator. You know, you have all this stuff out there, scoffers. No, no, it's done. And, and let me say clearly, God created this earth in six literal 24-hour days. That's very critical. It's not like he created and he used millions and millions and millions. That's not what it says in Genesis 1. That's not what it says in Exodus 20 as far as the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Right? Right? Don't, don't capitulate. Six 24-hour days. Keep to that. That's what the Scripture says. Very, very important. So again, we identify. But see, because He is the Creator, there's something else we find out about God here. He is the all-wise, all-powerful one. See, to create means He's the all-wise, all-powerful one. So again, this is who He swore. So in other words, this will happen. Now, Now, notice the second part of this. Verse 7, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. What is the mystery? The mystery of God. He's referring back to the mystery that was presented in the Old Testament but didn't find its fulfillment there. 
that things were said by the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, especially some of the uh, major prophets. Things were said, but they haven't been fulfilled. And you know what the major thing that was said? That the Messiah would come back and that there would be a millennial kingdom. See, God is not finished with this earth. God is not deist. He doesn't start it and let it go on its own. There's a planned purpose. Everything's coming to its f- conclusion. And not only that, but Israel is part of that conclusion. I like what uh, John Wolverd, the uh, president of the Dallas Seminary, said. He wrote this of the mystery, and I believe it's spot on. He said, This mystery had been previously announced to God's prophets. The reference, therefore, is not to hidden truth, but to, the, but to the fulfillment of many Old Testament passages which refer to the glorious return of the Son of God and the establishment of his kingdom of righteousness and peace on the earth. While God's purposes are not necessarily revealed in current events where Satan is allowed, to, allowed power and manifestation, the time will come, and I'll emphasize it again, the time will come when Satan no longer will be in power And the predictions or the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets will be fulfilled. Point. Amen. Amen. So there's coming a day when the mystery will be completed. Okay? It will be completed. It will be finished. The mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So that's what he's referring to. So, and now this angel... This authority, this mighty authoritative angel says, by the one who created, which means he is powerful, he is almighty, he is all-knowing, it will, the mystery will be completed. Remember, the clock is ticking. Probably about six years into the tribulation has happened. The seventh trumpet, which then just rapid fires right to the end where Christ comes back, is just about ready to be blown. And the angel wants, you know, wants John to know and the things that were promised in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Aren't you glad that our God is a promise-keeping God? See, the Bible says this, if we receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Aren't you glad that if you receive Christ, he gave you the right, the authority to become children of God? That's a promise, right? That's, these are all promises. If you believe on the Son, that you will be forgiven. That's a promise. That you'll be made part of his uh, family. That's a promise. All these things. That, and so it's very, very important that as we look at Revelation, is it, is it going to be fulfilled like the Old Testament? Said it would. Yes. That's why it's so important to take maybe 40 weeks. That's what we've been doing. I think we're on our 39th study of Revelation. Looked at, you know, we looked at Revelation. We've looked at Mark 13, which is part of the Olivet Discourse. We've looked at... Um, you know, Daniel chapter 9. Why? Because what are we establishing in our hearts? That what God says in the Old Testament, He will do. He is a covenant-keeping God. He is a God who keeps His promises. So the outcome that is guaranteed, He swore, yes, by God Himself, this will happen. And then finally, an assignment or a duty that is carried out. Now this is kind of an odd one. (laughs) Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me and said, Go, that's an imperative. Take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Go, go to him. Now John moves from being an observer to actually 
being part of, right? He's, a, he's an actor in the drama. <laughs> he's going to take the scroll. And again, symbolically, he's not, ah, okay? But the idea is it's symbolic. He's going to take it. So I went to the angel, and he said, give me the little book. That's John speaking, again, imperative. He's going to take it. Now, and, and the book represents, again, the, the truths of God, especially, specifically, what God is going to do from this point to the end. It's because John only has seen what is happening up to the sixth trumpet. Now, I think this is going to be the last trumpet, including the bowl, including Christ coming back, setting up the millennial kingdom. So he takes it. That's his participation. In verse 10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand. I ate it. That's symbolism, but again, I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. What does that represent? It, it represents digesting the word of God. In other words, John is told, listen, the things that you're going to hear, it's not good enough for you just to hear it. I want you, I want you to grasp it. I want it to be conviction. I want you to understand it. I want it to affect you. I think this is where sometimes the Word of God, we, we listen to the Word of God. You listen to it. You study it. But it doesn't affect us. This is, God is saying, I want it, you eat it. I want it to, I want you to digest this. I want you to internalize this. I want this to be conviction. In fact, I want it to be so strong in your life that you're going to do something with it. So he's told to eat it. Remember Psalms 19? More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. That's referring to the word of God. I can ask you the question. Is the word of God sweet to you? Do you really find it sweet? Do you really find it palatable? Like you, you, you thirst for it, you want it. It is so sweet. It is so comforting that you yearn for it, you yearn for the Word? Well, you can ask, have you been in it at all this week? See, you can't say, I yearn for the Word, and yeah, I haven't been in it by myself in months. You're not yearning for it. John is told, I want you to, or God tells John, I want you to internalize it. Uh, Jeremiah 15, another prophet, 15, 16, it says, your words were found. This is Jeremiah the prophet speaking. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. I just love your word. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I just love it. So John is told to internalize it. And I think the best way you can do that is you meditate on it. You have to meditate on the word if you're really going to get uh, out of it what you need to get out of it. It's not just a superficial reading. You need to delve in and say, this is what the truth is. Lord, now affect my heart. And, and you see the same thing in Psalms 1. Remember the first part of Psalms 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. But what would it say? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. You know what's going to stop many of us from meditating on God's word? The remote control. Because at night, when you have time and you could focus, and you know what we do? Where's that remote control? 
And if you can't find the remote control, you get even nervous. Where's that remote control? I can't operate my TV. Remote control, media, internet, Facebook, iPods, iPads, you know, iPhones, I, 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 whatever. But the point, okay, it's not wrong to have them. But I'll tell you what, if your consumption, if you have a greater consumption with those things than with the Word of God, you're going to have a fleshly, carnal mind. That's all there is to it. You can't get away from it. So John is told, consume it. it and, and notice what happens. The word is sweet in John's mouth. Why? Because in these last tr- judgments, he finds, again, reconfirmation. God is sovereign. He's going to judge wickedness. He's going to crush Satan. He's going to stand as the only one. Christ is coming back. Christ is going to rule. Sin is going to be judged righteousness will reign, sinners will be uh, uh, destroyed, and believers will be rewarded. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that a sweet thought? Most of it is. Most of what I just said is. But there's one piece that is not sweet, and that is sinners are going to be destroyed. That's That's hard. Isn't that hard? That's very, very hard. And that's why, see, when he first put it in his mouth, Yeah, first response to God's word, praise God, he's holy, he's just, he's all-powerful, he wins. But now the word is bitter in his stomach. Why? The realization of the terrible doom, death, and destruction awaiting unbelievers. And and that should make us... See, when we read the word, when we see Revelation, I'll tell you, if you have eaten the book, as it were, and I don't mean, I mean symbolically. Have you ingested this? You know what it should do? Boy, it's sweet. Christ wins. Boy, that's hard. Wicked die. Wicked are destroyed. And they're not annihilated. They are thrown in the lake of fire. Where they will burn and suffer, torture and terror the rest of their eternity. Isn't that a sad thought? See, if this book grips us, we're going to be out telling people, you need to turn to Christ. You need to turn. Turn. Today is the day of salvation. So that's why it's both sweet and bitter. Yes, Christ reigns. Satan is destroyed. Wickedness is destroyed. But wait, the wicked are people. And they're going to be destroyed along with all the other wickedness. That's hard. So we should have compassion. This should create compassion in our hearts. This, I, at one time in my life, I, I used to think it this way. And I can't wait till the wicked get their due. That is so sad. That is not showing compassion to those. I, but for the grace of God, there go I. I mean, what is, what is, Christ, or what is God saying in Ezekiel 33? Say to them, this is uh, the Lord through Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Now he's speaking to Israel, but you can speak to any Gentile. See, that should be our heart. This book, if you, if you have done what John has been told to do, this should affect us how we live and how we affect other non-believers, especially in this context. That's how it should be. Go to Ezekiel chapter 2. We're going to end. <clears throat> Let me just give you a, com- a 
a few concluding points, and then we're done. Concluding points, Ezekiel, and then we're done. I would say one of the concluding points is this. Just like John, we have a role to play in God's plan. Just like John, we have a role to play in God's plan. Because Jesus told the disciples, all authority has been given to me. Now go, what? And make disciples. And then he says, you know, baptize them and then teaching them to observe, that's do, all the things that I've commanded you. Just like John is told, now prophesy again. See, that's where I think we get the rest of the book of Revelation, chapters 11 on. Is what, he's, what he was told. That's the little book. He's now, this is what God is going to do. This, so he's taken it in, but it's affected him. And if this affects us, we are part of God's plan. It's not enough for us just to sit in the chair. I almost said pew. Sit in the chair. No, we need to do something with the truth that we have. It needs to be internalized. It needs to become part of our lives. And then we need to go. Or as we're going, actually, the verse. Number two, much of God's truth tastes sweet to those who are his. No, God's truth is very sweet to us. But remember, this same truth is very, very bitter to un- and an unbeliever. Right? What is sweet to us is bitter to them. In fact, what is sweet to us is very offensive to them. Because what is sweet to us is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he is the only Savior. And anyone else that promotes himself as a Savior other than Jesus Christ is false. Now you go around any false, you go around any world religion and say that. They hate you for that. But what is sweet to us is bitter to them. And then number three, to have a passion for, for the heart and mission of God, in other words, to really feel God's pulse, as it were, we have to eat his word. Okay, what I mean, again, we got to hear it, we have to digest it, we have to live it, and then proclaim it. It's not enough just to hear it. We have to, many of you are hearing it. You know, you're not like zoned out. We had a guy years ago sit right about there, and like by halfway through the service, you almost hear him snoring. Well, at least you're hearing it. But you know, I want you to take it home. I think one of the reasons we don't change quicker is we don't meditate on it. We got to hear it, then we got to meditate on it. Number three, we've got to live it. I'll tell you what, if you don't live the Word of God, it's almost like God, and I've seen this in my life a few times. He just puts a he just puts a pause button. Oh, you're not willing to live my word? Pause. And I'm telling you, it's like a pause. You will not, it was almost like you can't get any more out of it. Oh, you want to live it now? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll let you start living. I'll start, I'll let you start learning more. You want to really learn, live it, but then proclaim it. Proclaim it. Ezra did this. It says he prepared his heart to seek the law, the law of the Lord, to do it, to teach, and then to teach the statutes and the ordinance of Israel. So he knew it, he did it, he lived it, he proclaimed it. That's, that's always the case. It's not just about hearing it. Ezekiel chapter 2. Now again, Ezekiel doesn't go to the Gentiles. He's going to the ungodly nation of Israel. And, by the way, they are an ungodly group. They are stubborn. Look at uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2. He says, I'm sending you, verse uh, 3, to the, uh, sending you to the children of Israel. They're stubborn. 
they're rebellious, they're impudent. I mean, you see that all in verses 1 to 5. They're not a good group. They don't like prophets. You think of Israel like, I want to, no, no, they don't like you. Ezekiel, they don't like you. They don't like your message, but I'm going to send you anyways. Look at verse 6. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them. My, they might try to kill you. Uh, Do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks. Verse 7, you shall speak my words. I'm just picking out pieces. You're going to speak my words to this rebellious people. But you, son of man, verse 8, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house. In other words, live the truth. Open your mouth. Eat what I give you. Now when I looked... And there was a hand attached out to me, and behold, the scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it out before me, and there was writing on the inside and outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe, which means the message is negative, okay? See, this is, a, this is like an Old Testament example of what John has to do. The book is laid out, except it's mourning and lamentations and woes. That's negative. Moreover, chapter 3, verse 1, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And then he goes and speaks their words. But the house of Israel would not listen. Verse 7, but the house will not listen to you. See, wouldn't you love to be a prophet where God says, listen, you internalize it, you preach it, and when it's all said and done, they're not going to listen to you. Oh, that's really being a successful guy. But the house, verse 7, will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent, hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their forehead. And he goes on and on, and, and that's what happens. He's faithful, they're not. He proclaims the truth, they reject it. But he is still successful in the eyes of God. That's what I want. I want you to hear this real clear. When you proclaim truth to an unbeliever, their reception or re, re, reception of the truth, you know, re, receiving it or rejection of the truth is not determining your success. See, sometimes we think, unless they receive Christ, I have failed. No, don't think that way. What we're doing is this, presenting truth so that the, by the Lord's Spirit, he has, as it were, fodder to use in that person's heart. All we're told to do is present the truth in a very clear, concise way. But as Ezekiel, he's told, listen, this is the truth. You're going to present it, and they're going to hate you. They're going to reject you. They're going to want to even kill you. But just understand, I'm sending you, and for you to be successful, you just have to present it. So for you to do what God wants you to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, just present it. Present it clearly concisely, with conviction, because you're living it yourself. But again, you don't have to, don't walk away saying, oh, and they rejected me. No, they didn't reject you. They rejected God's truth. So be faithful. Let's stand as we close.